Well, this week at our uh, house, at my parents' house, they went through their attic. And when they go through their attic, they find some wonderful treasure troves for people like me who grew up in the house. And one of those treasure troves they found, one of those uh, beautiful diamonds in the rough, is a little book that has provided a little bit of laughter for my family this past week. This is uh, evidently a uh, free writing or journal book that I wrote when I was in high school, transitioning from Barbados to the United States of America. By the way, my very first entry into this was, I can't think of anything to write about, 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 I can't think of, I still can't think of anything to write about. That's the true story. <laughs> Apparently we had to sit there in class and just write for whatever minutes, and I don't think it was ever graded. So here's, here's one thing I decided to write, and I, apparently you could write about anything. It says, rules for parents. Anyway, if there were such a thing as giving rules to parents, they would have a very short list since they are pretty well behaved already. There are very few complaints about the rules my parents give me. One of the rules would be that I would be allowed to drink and eat when I want. I think that's a good rule because I know I could handle myself. Very next entry, I feel like I just ate a cow. My stomach is bulging over my pants, and I think I'm going to explode. True story. Very next day, I wrote that. All right. February 6th, of, I think this was 1990. We took our metal shop test today. I got 15 out of 20, 75%. That's terrible. I'm mad because some of the stuff that was on the test, we were never taught. Amazingly, everyone else knew it. <laughs> I hate that, I said. Now, my wife tried to defend me, and wonderfully so. She said, it's possible, because we had metal shop in eighth grade, and you weren't here, that they, that could be true. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's probably what that is. Last one, then I'm going to move on. March 26, I wrote, home ec class is crazy. The next thing has nothing to do with home ec. But anyway, home ec class is crazy. Remember home ec? Anyone? Yeah, that was great. All right. I just told Ralph my sister likes him, and he doesn't believe me. I wouldn't believe me either because I'm lying. <laughs> and when I tell my sister, she'll be mad. <laughs> there is more. There is more. I'm going to leave the rest of that there for now. And I'm going to guard this book later on so it doesn't get out of my, my control. It's interesting, isn't it, uh, what stories do to us as people? It's interesting how fun it is and how engaging it is to hear stories about things in the past. And isn't this why we love to get together and hang out with one another? Isn't this why you love to have your friends over? Some of you today kick off Sunday for, for um, football. For some of you, you care about more that, that more than other people do. But you're going to enjoy having people around you who you like to have around you. Like, it's going to be fun to be together. And you're going to share stories and talk about what happened. This is what we, we love getting together, people who were a part of our past. And we say, hey, do you remember when you, you did this? Remember when this happened? Remember when you were in high school? Remember when? Remember when? Remember when? Remember when? And I don't know if you ever thought about this, but stories are very interesting things. Stories do a number of things. And stories uh, do two things I want to talk about this morning. One of the things that stories do is that stories, I'm going to put it this way, stories kind of come from our past. They, they, from our past, they give meaning to our present and hope to our future. Stories coming from the past give meaning to our present and hope to the future. This is why, especially if you've ever talked to someone who's lost a loved one, why they like to still talk about their loved one. 
They don't like to not talk about their loved one. They like to because it gives life and hope to the future. Like it gives meaning to the, to the present. Stories kind of from the past come into the present. And even these little stories about me in, in high school, they are a source of fun and, and laughter for our family. But they come, they're kind of a mechanism to move ideas forward to the next generation. Stories also do one more thing that are important. And stories do this. They make sense of life by putting flesh on the bones of convictions. Stories make sense of life by putting flesh on the bones of convictions. What I mean by that is, if you were to ever say, um, you know, my parents, and you fill in the blank on how your parents were, like my parents were loving people, you'd immediately have a story to follow that up. Like I might say, my parents cared a lot about me because they came to just about every basketball game that I played, even though we lost by about an average of 37 every night. Or if you have a different story, my parents were not supportive. I grew up in an emotionally abusive home. You would then immediately recount a story. That stories are a gift to us because they take values and convictions that are ethereal and abstract, and they put flesh on them. You might say, you know, my dad was a real man of prayer. Maybe that's your history. And then you would immediately recount, I remember seeing him every morning at 5.30 or 6, kneeling beside his bed to start the day. I mean, we have stories that put concrete actions on top of what are abstract values and convictions. And so stories do that for us. They drive home values and convictions. The benefit to that is that if we say we're people who have certain convictions and values, but don't have any stories to tell about them, then it helps us see if we're living our own values and convictions, right? Like if I say that I want to be someone who's a man of God, whom the next generation sees as a man of God and who's leading them that way, I'm going to have to ask, do they have stories to tell about me that would support the convictions and values that I have? This is what stories do. And so what I want to do with you in this next uh, series that we're starting beginning this morning is I want to take you on a kind of remember when journey. I want to take you on a remember when journey to go back in time to talk about your faith stories. Because I believe that the stories that you have to tell about your faith, which by the way, we don't often have a context to talk about, but the stories that you have about your own personal faith are critical for the next generation to see who you are and also critical for you as you think about your life now that you continue to make good decisions based on what's most important to you. Okay? Now, we're going to go into this series that we're, I'm calling Remember When, and this is essentially a, a series on the book of Nehemiah. Now, one might say, why didn't you just call it Nehemiah? And here's why. I believe that in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah, as an Old Testament man of God, was um, dealing with the nation of Israel in a period of time in which there was great confusion, great identity crisis, and great struggle. And we will see throughout the book of Nehemiah that regularly Nehemiah asks God, remember what you've done with us. Remember your promises to us. Remember us, O God. And that he appeals to the people, remember what God has done for you. Remember, in other words, stop for a minute in the middle of all the management and busyness of life as it is now. Stop for a minute and remember when, nation of Israel, remember when you used to be courageous. Remember when God said that he would be faithful. Remember those times? 
Remember? Remember? And if you do, then make different decisions in your future based on what you remember in the past. And so I want to, in each of these messages that we're going to do, and there'll be ten of them in the book of Nehemiah, I want to take a moment in each one, particularly as we wrap it up, and ask you a question about what you remember. Remember when. Remember when. Remember when. The point being, I want us to go back and say, what are those stories of my faith that I need to revisit that helps me put meaning in the present and hope to the future? Okay, so we're going to jump into this book of Nehemiah. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to, to Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is a smaller little book, so it may kind of get away from you if you go through the Bible quickly. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible around you, uh, there is a, uh, if you don't own a Bible, there's a Bible near you in the pew around you. and That's our gift to you, by the way. Easiest way, I think, to find Nehemiah is to kind of open to the middle of the Bible, and you'll find the Psalms there, and then back up a little bit. It's a few books... Um, earlier than the Psalms, is the little book of Nehemiah. As you're turning there, I want to tell you a little bit about what's happening in Nehemiah. And that is, uh, as we open the chapters, open the pages to the chapters of Nehemiah, there is a great um, identity struggle for the nation of Israel. This is a time period in the history of Israel where they have been taken captive, and this is really hard for us to imagine, but their nation has been overrun for um, several, for a couple hundred years now, if my math quickly is serving me correctly, they have, they have been in what we call exile for 150, 200 years. They've been in exile for a long time. And they're coming out of exile now. They've been pushed out of the nation of Israel. They've been pushed out of Jerusalem. But now there's been a change in power from Assyrian to Babylonian power and then on again. And essentially, the people who were in charge of them are saying, listen, we don't care about you all anymore. Like, go ahead and do whatever you want. I mean, go on back to Jerusalem if you want to. And so they're heading back. And as they head back to Jerusalem, there are people who were still living there, but Jerusalem was, was blown up. I mean, it was destroyed. And so the first group of people who returned to the nation of Israel, to Jerusalem in particular, were led by a man named Zerubbabel. Let's all say Zerubbabel just because it's a fun name. Ready? Zerubbabel. Isn't that great? And Zerubbabel took the rubbabel and built a temple. I don't know, I just made that up. All right? But that's what Zerubbabel did. He took, he took the rubble that was there and he built the temple. Now here's why that matters. This is going to be hard for us as we don't live in this world, but you need to know this, that the, in the nation of Israel, the only way to repent and confess your sins is to go to the temple. For, for you and I, if you're a Christian here this morning, if you're listening online later, you're a Christian, even if you're not, you know this about Christians. Christians think that Christians can actually repent and confess anytime they want to. Christians believe that you know, God invites us to confess our sin to him. We can do that in the privacy of our own bedroom. We can do that as we're driving somewhere. We can do that even in this moment, sitting here privately before God. We have that invitation to come before the throne of God. That's what Christians believe. This is not the Jewish mindset. The only way to get your conscience clean and to get your relationship restored before God is to go to the temple. Like that's what the law requires. Go to the temple, make a sacrifice, and once a year, especially on the Day of Atonement, we get everything clean. But outside of that, you have got to go to the temple. There is no private prayer in your closet for confession of sin. And so if your conscience is heavy because you have done something wrong, whatever that might be, and you want that freeing of your soul before God and that restoration of that relationship, and there is no temple, there is no restoration of the relationship. 
And this is why it was such a big deal, why the temple was destroyed. That destroys a relationship with God. And so for generations, the nation of Israel was separate from God, unable to just go in their closet and pray. There just was a distance and a divide. And so Zerubbabel comes back, and the first thing you do is you don't rebuild the walls of the city, you rebuild the temple. That's what we need. We need to get back together with God. We need to restore our national identity as people who relate to Yahweh. And so he rebuilds that. Now the problem is he rebuilds the the temple, but without rebuilding the heart. And so we have generation upon generation of people who were not schooled in the law of God. They didn't know the law. And so Ezra, as a teacher, comes in as the second wave of people who return. Years later, a couple decades later, Ezra comes back and he teaches the people because they had a temple now, but they were just doing immoral things. They were doing things that were were wrong. And so Ezra rebuilds kind of the heart of the people, and he teaches them and convicts them and challenges them in the book right before Nehemiah in the book of Ezra. You know, he rebuilds kind of the the spiritual well-being of the people. Nehemiah then is the entering into the, the category into the world, and he's going to end up becoming the guy who leads what they call the third wave of returnees, the people who return for the third time. And his interest is going to be, how do I rebuild the wall of the, the city? It's not just a book about rebuilding the wall, because he knows that these people, they're there and they're not rebuilding the wall. Their hearts aren't in it. They don't believe. This is about rebuilding the wall, but it's also about the condition and the heart of the people who are there and the struggle that they are having. In fact, we'll see that in the first four verses of Nehemiah that we're going to get to right now. So if you have your Bible and you've opened up to Nehemiah chapter 1, let's look at verses 1 to 4. That'll be our text for this morning. The words of Nehemiah, and I'm reading from the New International Version, by the way. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things... I sat down and wept, and for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. All right. Now, if you're reading the Bible on your own, you're reading the Bible in your own room, in your own place, um, I want to give you three little um, hints of how you can read the Bible for yourself. And three words that I've been taught that I've shared with some of you and that many of you know, and that is a three-step process of, first of all, observing. What do I see? Observation. Secondly, interpretation. What does it mean? And thirdly, application. So what? So if you're reading the Bible, one of the first things we do when we read the Bible is often I read it and I think, what does it mean for me? The question we want to ask before that is, what do I see first? What do I see written right there? And so look with me, put on your observation goggles, if you will, and look again at the text of Nehemiah chapter 1. We're asking, what do I see? So look at verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. So this is Nehemiah writing. He's identifying as the author of the book. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, he's framing up this so that he's giving people an opportunity to fact check him. This is where I am when I was there. Okay, so he says, Hananiah, or excuse me, Hanani, one of my brothers, we just assume that's an actual real brother, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. This is a very interesting verse. So we see that he has a brother. We saw in the chapter verse before that he, his father's name is Hakaliah. We're not sure who that is. 
But at this point in verse 2, he receives a party of men. They're like an exploratory party or team or whatever. They come into the citadel of Susa, and they came from Judah. There's Hanani and some other people, and I questioned them about two things. Look at the two things again. I questioned them, one, about the Jewish remnant. That's a theological term of that's used now to describe people who are kind of kept separate and apart from God, that God preserves these people uh, for his, his sake. I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So there's two things that he's interested in. How are the people doing and how's the city doing? That's kind of what I want to know. Here's the group of people. They're the people I'm waiting to hear from what is happening. Because he knew about Zerubbabel and he knew about Ezra and he wants to know how are things now getting along. Because Ezra got a little mad with the people. Zerubbabel tried to rebuild things. Because I'm not there, tell me what's happening. All right. Verse 3, and this is what they said to me. Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. Well, that's a problem. That's not necessarily what you want to hear. You can imagine Nehemiah waiting for this report. He knew they were coming. They didn't just show up and be like, hey, Nehemiah, we have a report for you. Our anticipation expectation is that this is a kind of a normal reporting of what's going on. So he's waiting to hear the news about what's happening in Jerusalem. And the first thing that they say is those who survived are in great trouble. Number one, they're in trouble and they're in disgrace. And the question is, why is that? What is the reason for their trouble and disgrace? The clearest answer we can get as we're just observing the text again is the next verse. It says there, Nehemiah writes, The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. And so these two things that Nehemiah is interested in, what is the condition of the people, what's the condition of the city, are answered by the, the party. The condition of the people is they're in trouble and disgrace, and connected to that, the reason they seem to be in trouble and disgrace is because the wall is broken down, and the gates are burned with fire. That the, the ability of the nation to identify and gather for safety is gone. You, you, we cannot rebuild. Like We are in a bad spot. The people are in trouble, and the nation is in trouble. The city is in trouble. What do we do? Now, have you ever gotten news that you've had a physical reaction to? Have you ever gotten news that's been so heavy for you that you have a, a physical reaction to it? And if you think about that for a minute... Yes. Generally, it's bad news. Sometimes it's good news, but generally it's bad news. Um, and that's the case for Nehemiah. If you're a, a Bible person or you've been around church for a long time, you already know the story of Nehemiah. It's easy to, to get into this and be like, I know what's going to happen. The city's torn down. The walls are bad. We're going to rebuild at the end of the story. It's like a Disney movie. You know, It starts off with characters, and then there's trouble, and then it's going to work out, and everybody's happy at the end, and we play a theme song at the end, and that's the way it's going to work out. Kind of. But let's get into it and see how it works and slow it down to feel the pace of it with the character. So Nehemiah gets this news, and for you and I, it's like, yeah, I know that the stuff is torn down, but so what aren't they going to rebuild? But look what it does to Nehemiah. Observe with me the text. Look at it, verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. Isn't that amazing? Here's Nehemiah, as far as we know, the cupbearer to the king. And he sits down because he can't stand anymore on the news of this. And he weeps. And have you ever gotten news that you've had a reaction like that too? I've seen us in those situations. For most of us, it has to do with grief. 
when we get news that a loved one's diagnosis isn't what we want, or that they're gone, or in the middle of significant grief, you know it, and I do too, we just can't stand anymore. I mean, we, we just need to sit down. Our, our minds can't process and function at this level. And this is exactly what Nehemiah is dealing with. What he does next is a grieving process, which is a normal process for his people. Look what he does next. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Not for a few minutes, not for a little while, not for half a day, but for some days, unidentified amount of days, at least two, if not three or more, we don't know. But at least a few days, I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. This is a grieving process. This is akin to what someone does when they lose a loved one. And this is where Nehemiah is. He is having a physical reaction to the weight of this news. Now, because you and I are not there and did not grow up in this and don't understand and don't feel intuitively the impact of this, it's a little harder for us to see it. And that's why I want us to slow down on this. Because what Nehemiah does here in verse 4 is the seed that gets planted into his heart that as he allows himself to live in this moment of grief and not rush through it, it is a, a watering of this seed, his, his tears if you will, water the seed that allowed this conviction and passion of his to grow up over the next several chapters. Nehemiah is going to face in this book great opposition, great struggle, uh, great hardship, and he is going to lead through it all. Why? What is the motivation for Nehemiah? What is the driving force for him? Where is it that his passions have been stirred that keep him on task even when things are going to be so difficult? And I would argue that it's verse 4 of chapter 1, the opening of what we see here, that in this moment Nehemiah sits down and weeps. And for days he mourns and prays and fasts over the situation. In other words, God, don't let this thing rush through my heart. Let me sit in the weight of it and do something in me. And this is why I think James in the New Testament writes, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, because the trial ends up producing in the long run something that is greater than you could ever imagine in the trial itself, as long as you don't rush through it. And so Nehemiah stops, sits down, weeps, mourns, prays, and fasts, and allows this to settle in on him. And this, I believe, is what is at the heart of the entire book of Nehemiah. That this moment here, I don't know if I can be motivated deeply without having something like this stir me deeply. Like, I don't know if I can stay the course of things that are difficult unless I've had some kind of moment like this where God has worked something in me and I've seen injustice for what it is, I've seen pain for what it is, I've seen the struggle for what it is, and been moved to action. Some of you know, um, because you went to school with me, back when I was writing in my awesome journal here that I alluded to at the beginning of, of uh, this message. Some of you know a, a gentleman by the name of Tim Stauffer. Some of you know that 
Tim Stauber is no longer with us. In fact, he was shot accidentally to death in 1993, I believe. 93 was the right year. And I was in high school during that time. And I, and I remember, I called Tim a friend, not the best of friends, but definitely a friend. And I remember as a high school junior hearing that Tim had been accidentally shot by someone in our school who had carried a, a gun into German class and, uh, and used it as a prop and later on went home and and just pretended in the parking lot of Tim's drive and shot him, and he bled out. No one knew that there was a 200-year-old bullet in the barrel of that gun, and no one knew that, and a freak accident. And I remember as a junior in high school, sitting down and, and weeping for this, and just being moved by the ridiculousness of it all, and the, the pain of it all, and the fragility of life, and just being like, this can't happen. Like, I, this doesn't happen to people. Like, this is, there's no way. This isn't the way that God designs the world to be. This isn't right, right? Like, there needs to be something more to life than just making enough money and having a big enough house because things like this happen. And so what it stirs in me is this passion and conviction to say, listen, life could end at any time, and I want to give my life. I want to give my life to invest in the kind of thing that has eternal impact because life matters way more than what I just see around me here, that there's an eternity waiting for all of us. And so that moment is like a seed that gets planted in my heart and is watered by the tears of that moment and is built out and grows so that I'm standing in front of you today speaking to you almost to, to, to a great degree because of that moment where God stirred something in my heart to say, Tim, let me... Let me put it right in front of you. This is what I want you to remember, that life is fragile. And it's going to end for all of us. Get your priorities in line. And, and I remember when God stirred that in me. And I remember even this past summer, for some of us who were on the Dominican missions team, I remember sitting on the top of the roof at the Macario's house that we were at. And some of you were there for that. And we asked, what are we going to remember from this trip? Because we were moved by that experience. We were moved by who we saw and what happened there. I think we talked about there saying, we want to remember just one thing from this trip. So that you will not forget what God has done for you here. So that you can look back and say, I remember when I was on that trip. And God moved this in my heart and shaped me and changed me. And here's the question I want to ask for you. Do you remember when? Do you remember when? The things of God stirred you deeply. Do you remember when that happened for you? Do you remember when there was something in you that said, okay, God, I, I, I give in. Like, I trust. I have faith. I, I'm a broken person before you, and I can't stand before your righteousness. Like, I, I am given over to you, whatever you want from me, and you stepped in and said, I'm going to follow you, and whatever it takes. Do you remember the moment for you? Do you remember when your heart was soft to that? When God drew you in and changed the way that you thought about yourself and your family and your children? And moved in you this deep passion and stirred those waters. And said, this is what life should be about. Do you remember when that happened? Because this is where Nehemiah is. And it is stopping in this moment to go back and remember when. That is a great gift to us. Because for all of us, for all of us, myself included, 
All systems tend toward decay over time, and the system of life is no different. I think for many of you, you have a moment where you can remember, man, God stirred something in me of injustice for the people around me. I saw poverty for the first time, and it was crazy. And now I'm doing other things, but I remember that was bad then. Like, all systems tend toward decay. We know that, unless they're managed and kept up, that people need, all of us need to stay on mission and on purpose. And this is the point of this question. Do you remember when? Do you remember when you, your heart was stirred so deeply for the things of God that it felt like, man, God, whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, like I'm, gonna, I'm willing to sell it all. Like I, I, I can do that. Like I'm, I can go and do whatever. Like do you remember those moments of conviction and passion where your, your heart, your soul were stirred for the things of God, where a mourning and a passion and a prayer and a cry was brought out from you? And I'm just going to ask the next question then, and that is, Am I living in light of that moment? Like, to what degree now am I living in light of that moment where God stirs us in me and says, Come follow me? Like, am I still leading my business in that way? Am I still leading my spouse and serving her and him in that way? Am I still serving my children? Am I still making decisions about my career based on how, what God has stirred in me? Or do I have it now? Like, I don't need him anymore. I had that moment, but that was a weak moment, you know, when I was, you know, in junior high, and they played a song, and they had a campfire, and it was just a weak moment of vulnerability. Or was it actually, you know what, this is God moving in us to draw us to him and to see things that otherwise we wouldn't see. I want to encourage you to do a couple things. One, I want to encourage you to rehearse your story. Do you remember when? Do you remember when the things of God stirred you deeply? You remember that? I want to encourage you, number one, to rehearse it. Number two, I want to encourage you to ask someone their story. Maybe you're in a small group with somebody, and you're meeting this week or next week. This is a great question to take an entire small group time to talk about. Or even coffee or breakfast or lunch with a few friends. Say, hey, anyone have the story? Anyone remember when? Anyone have a moment like Nehemiah had? What was it that stirred you deeply? What was it that got you going? What is it that's in the convictions and the passions of your heart? It's a great lead-in question to allow people to share what they're doing and where they're going. And this is where Nehemiah's story begins. And this is where the whole book leads from. And this is what I want for you. I want you this morning to stop and ask, do I remember? Do I remember when the last time is I actually cared? Yeah, I remember when I came to church, but I do that every Sunday morning. I remember when I read the Bible, but you know, but I'm asking, like, do you remember when your heart was actually stirred deeply for the things of God? David, in the end of Psalm 139, he writes this, and I, and I love the prayer, and I want to give this prayer to you for your own thought and consideration. He says this, Search me, God, and know my heart, Test me and know my anxious thoughts, the things in me that want to lead me in my way, not your way. Test me and know them. And then see if there is any offensive way in me, meaning like if there's any way, anything in me that leads me in a place where you don't want me to go. Like if I'm going in a way that isn't in line with what you want, like show that to me. See if there's anything in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is simple. And this is a simple prayer for you and for me. Like, God, do this for me. Take a moment. 
this week and reflect on this even. Say, God, I don't know. I, I think I remember. That was so long ago. So long ago. My passions were stirred that deeply. It was so long ago that I cared. I don't want for you to get old and crusty. And I don't either. That God would teach us and show us and draw us back to our first love. That every decision we make and every moment we share will be lived out with this question. God, what do you want me to do in light of what you've done in my heart? For Nehemiah, his next thing to do was something that was rather scary, to be honest. He had a big decision to make, and he had a big threat right in front of him. And he had to step into something that required a whole lot of courage and a whole lot of trust. And that is going to be our story for next week in part two of Remember When. I want to encourage you to come on back for that. And I'm also going to do a little preview and let you know we're going to share a nice story of grace next Sunday that you're probably not going to want to miss as well. That's all I'm going to say about that. All right. Will you pray with me this morning? Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to start looking into the story of Nehemiah and to pause it right at the beginning and see how you worked in his heart to allow him to pause in this moment and reflect on what's happening with the people and in the nation, the city of Jerusalem, and how his reaction to that essentially leads the whole book and grows up throughout that. His vision, his clarity, his ability to withstand struggle and hardship all come back, I believe, to this moment where you've settled something in hard in his heart and you've planted that seed deep. And I pray for us this morning that for many of us it's been years and years and years since we've honestly had our passion stirred like this for the things of you. That we are, um, we're consistent, but we're sometimes a little calloused, if we're honest. That we've allowed ourselves to be covered over with just the regular maintenance of life and the difficulty of even just getting through season to season. We've been hurt. We've been uh, wounded. People have offended, and we've not always known how to process all of this difficult stuff well. But I pray this morning, Father, that you would help us to ask this question. Man, do I remember when the last time was My heart has been stirred deeply for the things of God. And then to ask an even more difficult question, will the next generation be able to remember a story from my life about that or not? Father, we know that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is living within us. And so we thank you for your Holy Spirit and we thank you for the strength that you give us. And I pray that you would... Take by your spirit, take the interests and desires that we have to follow you and to lead us with courage to what we need to do. We pray this in Jesus' name.